Happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, we've been in a collection of talks called Holy Moments, and this is actually part six uh, of this series. And really, this series is ending today, but it kind of goes on until Good Friday, and then uh, next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to be uh, celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what our entire faith is about. Um, and, and today, where we are in the story and in, in the life of Jesus is, is he's gone through uh, a time of prayer in the garden. He's been anointed for his death. He's been betrayed by Judas. Uh, Peter has denied him. Jesus has been arrested. He's gone to Caiaphas, the high priest, and uh, been on trial in front of Caiaphas's house. And where we are today is Jesus is now brought to Pontius Pilate. Now, for contextualization purposes, it's important to understand that as a Jewish person, you could not order the execution of another Jew. You could not do that. Only Rome, who was the governing authority, could order an execution on someone. And more often than not, the, the ordering of an execution almost never fell on a Roman citizen because the Roman citizens had more rights than a Jewish person or a Greek person or someone um, that they had gone into a particular region. And, and so here you have um, Pontius Pilate. He's about to have this conversation with Jesus. And I think it's a really interesting conversation. We're going to lean into just a few points. And then to close out to today's message, I actually have a video I want to show you guys. And so Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 5. We're going to go quick. So you guys ready? ready. All right, excellent. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answers, so Pilate was amazed. Now what I want to do real quick is I want to look at a different take of this same, same story, same part in the story of Jesus' uh, trial, so to speak. And we're going to look at John's version of this. And the reason I say John is because uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all kind of give a different perspective or a different take. And so John chapter 18 same conversation goes a little bit deeper, and there's a part in this I want to pull out today for us. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? We just read that, right? And Jesus answered, Do you say this with your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your whole nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me, and the chief priest have delivered what have you done? And Jesus answered, and I love this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
And then Pontius Pilate said to him, what is truth? And that's the question I want to ask us today, is what is truth? Especially in this holy season, a moment where we stop and we reflect upon the crucifixion and the, the, the life and the is truth. But for many of us, I believe that it's something that we have wrestled with in our life. For many of us, I believe it's something that, that maybe we've had doubts and we've, we've second-guessed ourselves. And especially today in our culture, um, we have so many people who are coming at us with their version of truth, pushing against maybe an orthodox version of truth, or pushing against a cultural version of truth. And, and so we hear things like this, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. Have you ever heard that before? Some of you guys? And then you, you have the argument of, well, if, if what's true for you is not true for me, and what's true for me is not true for you, then we're both lying to each other, which means there's no absolute truth. And so what is truth? And my hope for the next 10 minutes or so is that I'm going to be able to answer this question with us. And the first point that I have today is this, Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And, and I think oftentimes uh, we, we mix what is true and what is truth uh, kind of up a little bit. And let me give you an example, just a very practical example. There are people all around our world who daily are diagnosed with a form of cancer, right? And so the, the truth is cancer exists, and it's really, really nasty. The truth is cancer destroys our body, our organs, our cells, our bones. But different doctors are going to have their version of the truth of how to treat that cancer. So you go to one doctor and they may say radiation. You go to another doctor and they may say chemotherapy. And you go to another doctor and they may say surgery. And all three of them are speaking truth in their own eyes or with their own perception, but not all three are going to end up leading to the result that the patient ultimately wants. And so one doctor may sit there and say, hey, uh, the truth is this, the facts are this, I can cut the cancer out and, and we can get rid of it. But he may not know that the cancer is spread to other parts of the body. The other doctor may say, we can, we can do radiation and isolate it and just, just hit that lymph node or hit that tumor and try to isolate it and get rid of it that way. And then the other person may say, let's just go the extreme part and let's treat it with chemotherapy. All three of these are true ways with how to treat cancer, but not all three of these will lead to the results that the patient would want. You guys tracking me with me with that? And so jump forward six months, a year, 18 months later after the treatment's done, the surgery's happened, whatever it may be, then you find out the truth of the perception of the doctor whenever it comes to treating you. And so I say that to say this, all of us are going to have moments where we are certain that we are right about something. All of us are going to have moments where we are certain that this is how God moves, all of us are going to have moments where we are certain that, that this is how we handle this situation, only later to find out that where we thought we were speaking truth, we were actually wrong about it, and we've learned from that lesson. Jesus is the embodiment, though, of truth. And personal truth may not necessarily, your personal truth may not necessarily be an expression of what is actually true. You guys tracking with me with that? 
because you have your worldview. You have your life uh, instances. You have your family history. And, and so my wife's definition of family and what a godly family should look like may be totally different than what my definition may be because my definition was uh, divorce and malfunction and screaming and yelling, and that was normal to me, and so that was my truth. And hers was like, they actually like each other, and they get along, and they play cards together. Holy cow. And they vacation together. Like, and so my truth is different than her truth. And so here you have Pontius Pilate, and he's saying, what is truth? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find it. Knock, and the door will be opened. It's an invitation for all of us to pursue truth in our lives. Erwin McManus says this. He says, for truth to exist, there must be a source that is trustworthy. Too often, we are lacking such a source. Think about the pandemic. I'm about to go here, all right? If I, if I step on your toes, just, I'm not getting political, all right? I'm just going to state the facts, okay? How many of you guys know this saying, trust the science? Yeah, trust the science, right? We trusted the science until the science wasn't giving us the results that the politicians wanted. I'm saying, you can look at the science, trust in the science, all right? And then the narrative started to change, and what we were told ended up being something completely different than what was happening. Like, there are multiple scientific uh, reports now about masks, right? And, and, and I know you got an argument over here, and you got an argument over there. Or what about vaccines? Vaccine. This is my favorite. If you get the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID. I've gotten COVID twice, and I got the vaccine, and I was boosted to go to Israel, all right? And I still got stinking COVID, okay? And so, like, trust the science until the science changes. Truth. Where is truth? And, and just be completely transparent with you. Again, I'm not getting political. Um, I think that what happened during the pandemic has caused an infraction in our country to be able to trust our government and what comes out of um, politics, out of the White House, out of the CDC. You know, I saw yesterday there's another virus that's even more deadly than COVID that just outbreak in, in, and I'm like, here we go again. CNN. It was on CNN yesterday. So, number two, there is a difference between the truth and what is true. There's a difference between the truth and what is true. Um, truth is about accuracy. Being true is about your intentions. Truth is about accuracy, and being true is about your intentions. Um, when Jesus said he is the truth, it means right there that there is no gap between the source of truth and the voice of truth. Jesus is the embodiment of that. And so here you have Jesus. He's having this conversation, right? He's having this conversation with Pilate. And notice how whenever Jesus has this conversation with Pilate, um, Pilate goes, are you a king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you say so. You're the one that's saying it, not me. I didn't come up in, I did not walk into your palace and say, hey, it's me, Jesus, homeboy, king of the Jews. I'm establishing my own kingdom, Pilate. What's up? Let's talk. No, that was not the case. Jesus went to Pilate while he was 
having his hands fastened and his feet fastened against Jesus' will, but willing to lay down his life for all of us. And when he steps into this scene right here, Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you say so. You say, you're the one that's saying it, not me. I never once said it to you. And then Jesus responds and he says, my kingdom... My kingdom is not of this world. Because if my kingdom was happening and taking place right now, you would not see all of this taking place. My, my guys, they'd come in, they'd sack your guys. I would just speak and all your soldiers, they would be dead. Like, this is Michael's interpretation of what is happening with Jesus, all right? Like, this is, if I was Jesus, this is what I would be thinking, okay? Which is probably good because that I'm not Jesus. But he's having this moment, right? And then, and then Jesus says, I came to be a witness, a bearer of the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? My question is, do you think that Pilate was actually searching for truth or what is true? Or do you think that Pilate was trying to run from the situation that he was facing? See, a lot of times we may ask ourselves, what is truth in this situation? And when we ask ourselves that, we just end up running from what is actually true. Because if we truly wanted to seek out and search truth, the truth may offend us a little bit. The truth may speak to some areas in our heart where we don't necessarily want to surrender over. So, so let, me, let me give you an example. All right? I'm going I'm to make fun of Christians for a minute because I'm a Christian and I can do that. How many of you guys you know people that are incredibly smart whenever it comes to theology? Yeah. How many of you, I mean, they, could, they can quote Bible verses. Yeah, I'm sure I can pull up Micah up here, and I could say, Micah, quote me a Bible verse right now. You know, and he could, boom, totally picking on you right now, all right? Um, they know a lot of theology. They know a lot of head knowledge. They know a lot of truth. But how they live, is that truly in response to what it is that they know? I have an old friend of mine who um, I, I love dearly and still talk to him almost every day. Um, and I'm telling you, man, home dude can school me on theology. Like he, I mean, he, he talks about things and, and words and, and stuff that I, I didn't even know that that was. I was like, that's a theological word? I feel so dumb right now. Like, I'm just being honest with you. But for the longest time, with this incredibly smart as he was, he did not know how to love people. He did not know how to treat people with honor and dignity and respect. He did not know how to take what it was that he knew, which was the scripture and the word of God, and to actually put it into practice. See, I, I, I think oftentimes people are wanting to know the truth, but not be true in the pursuit of Jesus. Meanwhile, I remember several years ago, this, this kid, Anthony, who was no theological scholar, who um, was, was coming from an impoverished family, who had a really rough background growing up. Man, he got into church, and this was way back in the day, whenever we're in the Episcopal church, and uh, this is like location number seven or something, and like at pre-service prayer, no, he can't, he can't get up here, and he, he might be able to quote John 3.16, all right? He can't tell you more than three of the commandments, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, something like that, right? But he got up here, not here, but at the Episcopal church to, to pray, and he grabbed the microphone and he said, Jesus, have mercy on me. 
His intention at that moment was true. His heart was coming from a place of, I want to seek truth, I want to know truth, and I want to find truth. There's a difference between having a lot of head knowledge about Jesus and actually encountering Jesus. And I'm going to say this, a lot of us have a whole lot of head knowledge about Jesus. We know the right things to do, we know the right things to say, we know the favorite, you know, God is for me, who can be against me, and I'm all about that. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But push comes to shove, we have absolutely no intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And just like Pilate, we want to know truth so that we can run from what is actually actually true. And my beckoning call for you today and for me today is that we would encounter truth with true intentions. That we would encounter truth in the source of truth in all areas of our life. And that is what Jesus is. He is both truth while being true. He is trustworthy. He is holy. He is king. So the text continues. I've got two more points, and now I'm going to move really quick. He says, now at the feast, he used to release, he being Pontius Pilate, he used to release for them one prisoner of whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas and said. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scored Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. My third point today is this. You and I are left with a choice. You and I, we are left with a choice. Barabbas was a man who was guilty. He was a rebel. He led an insurrection. He sinned against Rome. He sinned against the Jewish people. Jesus was perfect. He was innocent. He did nothing wrong. He healed people. Like, that's pretty awesome. He opened blind eyes. If I see eyes blow, like open, I'm just going to be like, what? Like, he called Lazarus out of that tomb. Like, come on, Lazarus, get out of that tomb. And home dude, all wrapped up, walked out of the tomb. Like, that's pretty amazing. And what, what, what is crazy to me even more, and, and I'm not going to, for time's sake, I'm just going to reference it, but in John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, just a few days before, the very same people who were crying out, crucifying him, were crying out, save us. See, Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the day where Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a humble king riding on a donkey to bring salvation for all of mankind. Jesus walks in and it's, this, it's called this Passover road leading in to Jerusalem and it's absolutely gorgeous. We had an opportunity to walk it and it's amazing. But as, as he was going in John chapter 12, you see the people gather around on the streets and they start crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
Son of David, save us. And Hosanna literally means save me. Save me. And just a few days later, the very same people who cried out for salvation were crying out to crucify him. And I think that that's so true in our lives. Maybe you're crying out for God to save you financially. Maybe you're crying out for God to save you relationally. Maybe you're crying out for God to to save you mentally. There's some mental struggles or battles that you've been having. Or maybe you're crying out for God to save you with anxiety. And so, God, save me. God, save me. God, save me. And yes, he will save you. But the moment that we get the thing that we want is the moment often we turn our hearts back to ourselves. And we just say, crucify him. Crucify him. And we say it with our deeds. I was talking to someone yesterday, and, and I noticed how quick a few things changed in my life and how easy it was to turn back, not to sin, not to like deliberately turn from my faith, but how easy it was to turn back to old habits and not spend as much time seeking Jesus or not spend as much time in the Word of God or praying, which is why I had to pull up an old sermon of myself last night, which totally sounds narcissistic. I can't even say the word. narcissistic, thank you. As I'm sitting there, I'm just like, yeah, I remember that. God, I need that again. This is why we got to get in the mirror sometimes. We got to preach to ourselves the word of God. This is why we got to be reminded. We got to be reminded. My fourth point is this, and then I'm going to show you guys a video. My fourth point is this. In order for us to see Jesus for who he truly is, we have to see ourselves for who we truly are. In order for us to see Jesus for who he truly is, we have to see ourselves for who we truly are. And there's a few characters in this story. One is the priest, the high priest, who led the Jewish people and stirred up the waters who had the Messiah that they had been praying for for hundreds, if not thousands of years in front of them, and they cried out, crucify him. This man is no friend of Rome. Crucify him. And then you had the crowd who bought into it, who was able to be led by the religious elite. And the crowd who cried out, Hosanna, just turned and said, crucify him. Then you have Pontius Pilate, who, when he is faced with true and truth in front of him, faced with an opportunity to talk to the King of Kings, he started to run from the truth and to push the problem off to someone else. And then you have Barabbas. Barabbas, who's set up to be executed who should be executed according to Roman law. And Jesus takes his place. Who are you in this story? We're going to dim the lights, and I want to show you a video, and I watch this video every year during the holy season, the holy week. And it's a very famous video, so it's very possible you've seen or at least heard this video. And if that's you, I just want you to just soak it in and reflect. And for everyone else, I want you to just lean into this moment 
And then after that, we're going to take Holy Communion. And then I'll come up and dismiss in just a few moments. So let's check this out. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free? Open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. They give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. Jesus and his free gift and never come back. 
loves them. And the nerve, the call, and the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me, say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No. God, I, I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. And I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, Go, son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus, 
It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough! Good afternoon, City Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Sean Duffy, and I have the privilege and opportunity uh, to serve on the... <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's a requirement to cry if you're going to talk at City Church, so I knew that was going to happen. I serve on the worship team here. I've been attending for about five years. Um, and I also have the privilege and honor of leading us in communion on Palm, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, Mike originally asked me to do this a couple weeks ago. And starting about a week ago, I started thinking about what I might share. Uh, and uh, I, started, I started digging into the Word and uh, remembering my youth and some of my earliest memories and some of my earliest memories of church is communion and being a little kid <laughs> running around collecting little cups you know back in the 90s back in the day some of us remember that uh, and so I started looking in the word about what I might say um, and uh, I love studying the word I get a lot out of it a lot of truth got probably about six two-hour sermons from what I found. <laughs> and then I asked Marissa how much time I had. She said about five minutes. So I was like, let's, let's, let's keep it simple. And that's all we need, right? But uh, what I love about this tradition is its consistency. But I could remember where I was at. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago where I would come. And this tradition points to a meal. This is a symbolic of a meal shared in a community. The first of which was Passover, celebrated by the Jews. Um, and if you would, I'd turn to digitally or otherwise. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23. And I'm going to be reading from there, but to give some context, which is always important with Scripture, uh, this is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which he helped start. And they're a new church. They've been, they are Christians. They have been saved. But up to this point, it's been a letter of correction because their lives have been reflecting the culture and not, and not Christ. And it's for their good that Paul gives this correction. Um, and even in the Lord's Supper, they would have basically a big potluck. And he was, you know, chastising them about, you know, the haves and the have-nots would show up, and the haves would eat all the food they brought, and then the people who didn't have stuff might go hungry. Or others might bring a bunch of their wine and get drunk, and 
that was the culture of the day. That's what they brought to the table, this mixed church, Romans, Greeks, Jews, different social and economic backgrounds, not unlike our church here today. But he was chastising them um, and to give them this instruction of how to go about it. And it's then followed by a warning. Um, let me read some of that uh, before we partake. Uh, this is starting in 27. But whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discernment of the body eats and drinks judgment of him, on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And it goes on. There's, there's a lot of theology here, like I said. Uh, it's a lot of truth. But I remember meals I've had more recently in the depths of COVID, eating at the Guzman's house on a, sun, uh, on a Sunday morning, starting the service an hour late because we were all just hanging out, eating, eating good breakfast and drinking good coffee, just running around with juice so we have a cup to have communion. The other night, I was with uh, some men before we got in the Word. We got some good Caribbean jerk chicken rice we shared a meal and that's communion it's actively engaging in Christ-centered community and I received this when I was a youth and now I pass it on to those who are here starting in verse 23 Paul instructs him how to go about how to go about this Paul, he was not there at the Lord's Supper. He received the instruction as well. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, a tradition that I was brought up in early on was to examine the bread, to think of the sacrifice, and if you hold it between your fingers like this, to break it, symbolizing that it was our sin that broke him. Continues on. This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, a meal is, not, is a common thing. Micah was talking about last week. But when shared among believers, it becomes a declaration of the gospel. So, as you go out today to have a meal amongst family, perhaps a bigger meal next week, you know, engage in community. If you need a meal, and maybe it's not food, show up. If you've been around a while, 
you have food to give. Give generously as it's been given to you. I want to invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to close out the reading of today's text, the rest of today's text. And as I read this, I want to challenge all of us, like Sean so eloquently did, to examine our hearts. Maybe there's something today that spoke to you. Maybe it was video clip. Maybe it's you're here searching for truth. Maybe it's that you know a lot about Jesus, but you're not encountering Jesus. You guys can, y'all can keep the doors closed back there for just a few moments. Yep, you're good. You're good. But I want to read this text, and I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song, and if you need prayer for anything, we're going to have our prayer team. We'll invite our prayer team to come up here. And it's an opportunity for us to respond to the Word of God. There's a a difference from hearing and then just leaving. We want to be a church that hears and then responds to the Word of God so that His Holy Spirit can bring transformation to our heart. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to read this text, and then I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, and then... um, We have some closing announcements for you guys. We're actually going to ask that everyone just hang out for about five minutes for just a short family meeting. And the soldier led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they all called together with the whole battalion, and they clothed him, him being Jesus, in a purple cloak. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. And they put on his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Father, You know where every one of us are in this place. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that right now, you would meet us. God, you would search our hearts. Father, I just ask that you would speak. Bring healing where there needs to be healing. God, that we would be in communion with you. In Jesus' name.